Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And how will President-elect Donald Trump interact with Congress? And what does his election mean for relations with with, uh, the rest of the world? We'll talk about those two topics today on a special pre-recorded Noon Edition with two experts in foreign affairs. We're very, very fortunate to have these two men with us today. Lee Feinstein is the founding dean of the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. I'm going to give him a little bigger uh, intro. He has had a distinguished career in and out of government, served served two secretaries of state and the secretary of defense, has worked at the nation's top research institutes, including the Council on Foreign Relations and the Brookings Institution and has taught law and political science at the University of Georgia, the George Washington University, and the City University of New York. He was also President Obama's first U.S. ambassador to Poland. And we also welcome back to the program Lee Hamilton, 34-year member of Congress and a professor of practice in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He was vice chairman of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks Upon the United States and co-chairman of the Iraq Study Group uh, and co-chairman of the Independent Task Force on Immigration and America's Future. He is well a well-respected statesman with a distinguished career in foreign policy. So I'm sorry you can't join the program today, but we hope you'll stick with us as we talk about uh, this extraordinary year in politics and, and what lies ahead. So, uh, Lee Hamilton, let's let's start with you. What do you see as uh, President Trump, President-elect Trump's relationships with Congress going forward? He's been a, a different kind of candidate than we usually see. He has, but uh, we've had a lot of tension between uh, the Congress and the executive branch over the last few years. Uh, what strikes me now is that you have the Republicans very much in control of the federal government. Uh, They control the White House. They control both houses of Congress. That ought to ease the communication uh, between the White House and Capitol Hill. Uh, Things ought to flow more smoothly. Uh, Some things I think are pretty obvious. Uh, Both will support tax cuts. They've made that very clear. Uh, Other things are less sure. Uh, Trump has said he favors term limits. (laughs) I doubt very much if uh, Paul Ryan supports that point of view, and Mitch McConnell has already rejected uh, the idea of it. Uh, But that's a small matter. Uh, They have a lot of very difficult domestic problems ahead where there are differences within the Republican Party on Obamacare repeal and a lot of other things. So I would expect overall a smoother relationship with a few bumps along the way. Now, I know you've been very um, uh, outspoken about the fact that the executive branch has really gained a lot more power in the last few presidencies. Uh, do you expect that to continue? Or do you think, I mean, with a man like Donald Trump and uh, the way he, he seems to run his own businesses, do you think he's going to try to maintain that strong executive power? It's a powerful trend that has been in existence now for several decades. It's going to be very hard to reverse. Uh, Trump, of course, I think will want to expand his powers. Every president does. Uh, So he will uh, do that. Uh, I would expect the trend to continue, frankly, but probably not quite as rapidly as it has. Uh, An awful lot depends on whether or not the Congress will step up to its responsibilities and legislate. Uh, We'll just have to give them some time to see whether they'll do that. The trend will not be reversed. I hope it will at least slow down. (laughs) Okay. Lee Feinstein, do you want to react to to those questions about Congress first before we get into some international affairs? Oh, no. I would never never (laughs) interfere or or, or deign to uh, add or or, uh, um, try to uh, embellish anything that – Congressman Hamilton says about the Congress. All right. Well, what about relationships with other nations? Donald Trump's been, again, very outspoken in his campaign about, um, you know, being very um, defensive, actually, of the United States and trying to restore our power in the world, or he he would say restore our power in the world. How is this going to go? Well, it's a a great question, and it's not an easy one to answer. Um, I was on the 
on President Obama's uh, transition team in 2008. And uh, that might, you know, some, somehow perspective can help, I think, in, in this regard. And, you know, it might be helpful to look at how that transition was and how this one is different and also maybe even some similarities because I think uh, we need to remember that in 2008, it was a pretty big transition too. Remember that, that uh, uh, President Bush was, was uh, a person who conducted the Iraq War and candidate Obama was a person who said it was a stupid war. That those are the words he used. And there were big differences on a lot of issues, um, not only on Iraq, but on treatment of detainees, on the question of Guantanamo, on the approach to the Islamic world, on Cuba. I'd say broadly speaking, maybe most importantly, on how to deal with dictators and other regimes that we may not like, but nonetheless maybe feel we need to deal with. And uh, that includes uh, Iran and attitude towards the United Nations. So it was a pretty long list. And the two, um, the two administrations, outgoing and incoming, were pretty far apart. The differences were really big. So what I th I'd say, so, so that's a similarity that uh, um, ought to help people have some perspective. Obviously, the differences here are big, too. But successful transitions are possible. The, the difference is that um, as big as those differences were, and remember, uh, Barack Obama was the change candidate in 2008, just like Donald Trump, but in a different way is the change candidate this time around. There was, there was a little bit less uncertainty, I would say, about, about what to expect in the transition itself. So President Obama came it, it, to the job having articulated in great detail what his plans were in foreign policy. And I guess the questions, whether you like those or not, the questions were, well, would he be successful in doing those? Would he be stymied? Would he be effective, uh, 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 an effective uh, uh, overseer of American foreign policy? How would he deal with crises? You remember the famous 3 a.m. phone call uh, commercial during the primaries? So... Um, in this case, President Trump, ha President-elect Trump has said a lot of things about foreign policy that have been, um, uh, that are pretty clear about the wall, about uh, relations with Russia, about uh, uh, deporting undocumented people, about attitudes towards Muslims more broadly, also some things about uh, allies uh, too. Um, uh, but he, he hasn't, uh, articulated specific plans or given extended speeches as a candidate about these, so there's more uncertainty. And in recent days, we've seen him, in some cases, modify or walk back those policies. So that's, 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 that's a difference. The other difference I, I wanted to point out is that uh, when President Obama was running, since he was also an outsider, although less so. I mean, he did serve on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was in the Senate, but he didn't have any executive experience and he was young. Um, but um, he had assembled, and it was very important to his credibility as a candidate, a group of foreign policy advisors who he brought with him into the transition team and later to the White House and other different government agencies. You know, I was, I was um, among them. But uh, President-elect Trump, on the other hand, has relied on by comparison, a very small number of people in this space who advised him into the campaign. And in some cases, the ones he's brought along are, are not well known, or uh, in some cases, they've been, they've been uh, controversial. So, you know, obviously history and structural forces matter, but uh, people matter too. They really matter. And so, and it, some of the news is beginning to trickle out. So who uh, president-elect uh, Trump uh, picks to lead his team and to run the, the, the government on his behalf will be really uh, important. And, um, and, and uh, it, it's not 100% clear. Some of the names are people who, whether you agree with them or not, are people who have a track record of working with other people uh, and, 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 some, and some less so. So I think those are the, the similarities and differences in the transition, which I think can give some perspective uh, that this is not this is this is very different in some ways, but in other ways, it's it's not unusual that there would be big uh, differences in policies between outgoing and incoming. Mm -hmm. 
We saw this week President Obama was even trying to reassure allies that Trump did support NATO and wasn't going to completely sort of throw it by the wayside. But what, uh, is it fair to characterize it as the other countries are really kind of on pins and needles waiting to see what he is going to try to do with NATO? Well, first, you know, in many things, I mean, I, I think, you know, President Obama has set a very high-minded tone during the transition while also stating his differences. I think that's the balance that he's trying to to strike. And I think he's trying to send a message. Uh, Congressman Hamilton has been very eloquent uh, about this. Uh, but, you know, nobody wants to root for their president to fail, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. And I think that's what President Obama is saying. You know, he has made it clear that he has his differences, but he wants to do everything possible for him to succeed for the benefit of, of the country and for the world. Um, I think it's true. I don't. It's 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 inarguable that there's a lot of uncertainty, especially in Europe and especially for our treaty allies in Europe and in Asia, about some of the statements made during the heat of the campaign about uh, the degree to which the United States will live up to its uh, defense commitments in its treaty alliances, and that's definitely caused some uncertainty. And I would say, in the case of Europe. Uh, the, the the positions of the candidate towards Russia have made uh, some uh, some of the European allies uh, nervous. Mm-hmm. Lee Hamilton, uh, same same question. I mean, the the relationship between the U.S. and NATO has been uh, very strong and very important for all these years. Do you do you fear for that relationship going forward? Well, I think Lee Feinstein has expressed it very well. Uh, We are not at this point to be too judgmental. Uh, This is a new administration. It's still coming together. Uh, We want to give the president-elect the benefit of the doubt. Uh, And uh, we'll have to see how his government evolves. Having said that, um, the United States leadership in the world has depended upon a network of alliances and a network of trade agreements. And uh, Sarah, I think when you say they're on pins and needles, you express it quite accurately. Foreign leaders are nervous. And from my point of view, they have reason to be nervous. Uh, I think Trump's election portends, possibly, dramatic changes in American foreign policy. And uh, some could be beneficial, some might not be so beneficial, but what he seems to be saying that arouses the concern of the world goes at this network of alliances and trade agreements. He's going to renegotiate trade agreements. Well, that can mean all kinds of things, but it makes people who have signed on to trade agreements nervous what's going to happen. He's been very unspecific about what he's going to do. On NATO, he's just raised all kinds of doubts. Uh, The people in the Baltics today are very nervous about his suggestion that if they haven't paid their dues, and he's got a valid point there, Uh, He's going to put into question our commitment to defend them. That makes them exceedingly nervous, of course. Uh, But it's not just that. Uh, He suggested that Japan and uh, South Korea might want to consider building nuclear weapons. That shakes up the whole non-proliferation Uh, idea, theme, policy that we've had for decades in this country. He said that climate change is a hoax. Now, that's exceedingly strong language and flies in the face of all scientific opinion that I'm acquainted with, at least. Uh, Lee mentioned building the wall. Uh, All of these positions will be modified, I trust, in some ways. He can't possibly hold most of these things, it seems to me. How do you deport uh, three to four or five million people? The only way you can do it is to pull the police out (laughs) 
uh, every neighborhood, due process goes out the window, legal challenges go out the window, and you just sweep up all these people and throw them out of the country. So these things have all of us nervous. Now, having said that, and I know these comments have been pretty tough, but uh, we should give him a chance and see what he does. Uh, my guess is he'll do a lot of walking back. But that's not assured. And one of the things that has impressed me over the years is that when president, when candidates make promises on the campaign trail, they don't ignore them. They come into office feeling committed, as they should, to the American people. And if you look what uh, Mr. Trump has said and promised, uh, you, you, you have to keep that in mind as you go forward. Mm-hmm. So one of the big promises, and you've both mentioned it, was this idea of building the wall. So it, even just specifically talking about that, he's going to have to get the support of Congress to do this. He's, he's in the process of redefining wall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Look, uh, That's a very good illustration. He's going to build a wall and let, get Mexico to pay for it. Which they've said they First won't of do. all, building the wall is hugely expensive. And if you build the wall 10 feet high, the uh, people wanting to get in the country will build an 11-foot ladder. And if they don't go over, they'll go under. And so walls are not all that effective. So what the other day said, well, we're going to have some fences. It looks back to me like he's beginning to walk back about to, to about what policy is today. We build some walls, we build some fences, we have a lot of technology and sensors down there, <clears throat> and we have hugely expanded uh, Border Patrol. They're now the largest law enforcement agency in the United States, and he wants to expand them even greater. So that may be a good example. Will Mexico pay for it? Well, of course, they'll not pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no chance of that. And and incidentally, that raises another little bit that's interesting here. I'm sorry. How's he going to pay for it if the Mexicans do not? Well, he said we're going to get the remittances from Mexicans in this country. He he may be on to something there. But that in itself raises huge questions of equity and uh, how you do it legally uh, and all the rest of it, which would be a terrific thorn in the side of U.S.-Mexican relations. Keep your eyes on what happens here in the next few weeks and months. Lee. Well, I just, I, I just wanted to emphasize what, what uh, the congressman said. I think uh, it's possible that when President-elect Trump uh, understands better the steps that have been taken uh, on the border, he might find that a virtual uh, wall exists, and you know the fact that he's moved from a wall to a fence is an early indication of, of, of that possibility. But also, you know, underlying all this is a, is, a, is a kind of an ideology that the way to address the anxieties and economic concerns that are legitimate and that people deeply feel is about building walls rather than opening up to the rest of the world. And that, I think, is a, is, is, is a kind of a theme that uh, helps to understand better uh, what um, President-elect Trump has represented during his campaign and what others in Europe and other places have represented, too, which is, are we better off? Are opportunities greater when we, uh, when we promote diversity, immigration, open trade, uh, or, are, or is the solution to our problems to, to close ourselves off from the rest of the world? I mean, I would, I would say that it's not possible in the world in which we exist to close ourselves off. When I look at I-69, which is you know perennially under construction, um, well, what is that about? That's about uh, creating opportunities. Now, it's not perfect. NAFTA is far from a perfect agreement. There are some serious problems. But um, our state is heavily dependent on exports. And who are top three export markets? Number one is Canada. Number two is Mexico. And number three is China. 
And among the countries uh, in the United States, Indiana is uh, and our manufacturing are one of the most heavily dependent on our ability successfully to, uh, to export our stuff. So, so there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's an issue there about the degree to which uh, the the solution uh, to uh, the proposed solution to one problem actually uh, interferes with, uh, I think, what really was the strongest um, appeal that President-elect uh, Trump made, which was that he would be able to deliver jobs for working people, which, of course, needs to be uh, a top, if not the number one, priority for the next president. And the proposals you make have to deal with the problems you've got. There are more Mexicans going from the United States to Mexico than there are Mexicans coming into the United States today. So that the big problem that everybody was worried about a few years ago about Mexicans flowing into the United States has reversed itself. And so here we are trying to build a multi-billion dollar wall and all the rest of it about a problem that is fading uh, for all kinds of economic reasons. So uh, you want to make sure that the solutions you address meet the problems uh, that are existing. I, I think what you just said probably surprised a lot of our listeners. So could you explain that a little bit more? How is that reversed? I mean, you uh, uh, Americans fleeing or going into Mexico, is that to Well, the to, Mexican to economy is picking up. Mm-hmm. They got more jobs down there. Mm-hmm. Our jobs are rather stagnant here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not uh, immune to recognizing the uh, receptivity in the United States of people coming across that border. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the economics have changed dramatically, but the overall environment has changed as well. Mm-hmm. Now, that may reverse itself in another few months. Who knows? But uh, right now, it's uh, that's the fact. All right, we're going to take a really short break, very short, and then we'll be right back. We're talking to Lee Hamilton and Lee Feinstein on Noon Edition today, and it's a special Noon Edition. You can't call in, but we'll be right back after a short break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we have two guests with us in the studio on this this, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Lee Feinstein is the dean of the Indiana University School of Global and International Studies, and Lee Hamilton, a former 34-year congressman for the 9th District in Indiana. So I'm sorry you can't call in on the program, but we're just going to continue our discussion about uh, what next after the uh, Donald Trump uh, election, mainly in international affairs we're talking about now. And I, before we leave um, the trade issues and trade deals, I, I just – I'm going to ask a very – I guess I'm going to hope for a very simple explanation of why trade deals are – why – what makes them good and what makes them bad? And what, what is Donald Trump? What, what is Trump? And actually, everybody in this campaign is like, oh, we don't want the TPP and we need to rebalance our trade deals. What needs to happen for this to work out better for the U.S.? Which, Lee, you probably well, trade, trade, voted on several trade deals, I'm sure. I have. Trade deals have changed a lot. It used to be trade deals were about trade. And you, it used to be about tariffs. Lowering tariffs was the trend, and we had all kinds of trade deals that lowered tariffs. Uh, Now trade deals have become much, much more complicated, and they involve all kinds of things other than trade. 
and we have found that uh, trade is an expression, of course, of global globalization. And there isn't any doubt that Trump is right, in my mind at least, when he jumps on uh, the discontent that people have about globalization and technology and the way it impacts our economy. They're very uneasy about that, and they feel like they've been left behind, and in fact, they have been left behind. So he has hit a chord that uh, people re uh, find uh, good. They, it resonates with them. Uh, but trade is an expression of the openness of our society that Lee was describing earlier. And overall, it has benefited Americans by giving lower prices to all kinds of goods. Now, the problem with trade politically is that the disadvantages of trade, and there are disadvantages because some people are put out of work by trade agreements, lose their jobs. That's very visible. The advantages of trade are that you pay a few cents less for this commodity or that commodity, and overall amounts big figures to the economy, but for any individual doesn't hardly register. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I have a kind of a sympathy with uh, uh, Mr. Trump on his uh, feeling that uh, we've got to be more responsive to people who feel they've been left behind. I think we, th this is a great example of representative democracy. You cannot ignore <laughs> a large group of people for decades whose incomes are stagnant, who see no increase in opportunity, whose children's opportunities are not as good as theirs. You can't ignore that kind of people for decades, which we have done basically, and not have them come back to bite you in the political process, and that's what's been done. So I think the trade negotiators have a much bigger task, and they have been floating along here in the traditional world of trade agreements, ignoring the impact on so many people. Mm -hmm. But even though Trump wants to unravel these trade deals, it, it seems to go against Republican ideals. So. Republicans have the majority. How likely are they to support him in this? And even all, the, I guess I'm just wondering, even in a bigger picture, how are they going to get him to sort of, how are they going to come to his aid now when all along we haven't seen them You've sort of supporting him? you splits in the Republican Party on this trade issue. The traditional um, view, mainstream Republican view, fair trade, free traders all the way, they've been, that's been part of the very core of the Republican Party. And he comes in and says, we've got to renegotiate all these agreements. He rejects the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership that uh, now, I guess, is off the board, not going to be considered. Uh, but the split is there, and uh, he's going to have trouble trying to reconcile his view and the review of the mainstream Republicans. That's going to be one of the issues to really keep your eye on to see whether they can govern on that issue. There are a lot of hot spots in the world right now, and Iran is one of them, certainly. The uh, Iran deal that was worked out by President Obama, I don't believe that uh, Donald Trump has been very supportive of that deal. How likely is that deal to be um, reworked in some way? Lee Feinstein? Uh, well, the President-elect has said he would, he would have walked out on the negotiations, so he's identified himself as, as an opponent uh, of the deal. Um, it's within his power to, to uh, repudiate the deal. I mean, he can, he can just do it it's a, uh, as, a, as a president. It's, not, it's a, an executive agreement, and he, he will have the ability to, to, to do that if he, if he is so inclined. Um, but it would have a lot of consequences, and it would not be so simple. I mean, you know, the, just to go back, I mean, what, what's the deal? In essence, the deal is a swap for uh, easing sanctions, lifting uh, sanctions uh, of uh, assets that um, the United States held that were Iranian uh, in exchange for uh, putting uh, limits on Iran's nuclear program. And it is not a perfect deal. Uh, Lee and I have talked about this in the past. We're, you know, no, no diplomatic deal 
is 100%. Uh, every, every deal has its weaknesses. Um, in this case, I think, you know, one of the weaknesses about this deal is it doesn't have the built-in process for extending it. Um, and, and maybe some of the verification provisions, the provisions that kind of check out what the Iranians are doing aren't as strong as uh, uh, say I would have liked. But uh, the, fu- the fundamental elements of the deal are that the two paths to building a nuclear weapon are foreclosed uh, for the next 15 years. So uh, that, that is a big, you know, 15 years, a lot, a lot of times diplomacy is about buying time. <laughs> and 15 years is a good chunk of time uh, to buy. Um, and speaking about buying time, the estimates are that Iran, uh, before this deal was implemented, was about three months from, uh, a dis- uh, from having a nuclear uh, weapons capability from a decision to have one. And this deal, by estimates, moves them a year uh, away from that. Now, you may say that's not a significant difference. These are estimates anyway, but it's, it's pretty uh, considerable that you would have time uh, to rally the international community to do something about it. And, you know, since the deal was concluded, Iran shipped 98% of its nuclear fuel out of the country as the agreement required, and it's uh, taken thousands of nuclear centrifuges, which enrich uranium, one of those two paths to nuclear capability I was talking about out of service. So how did we get the deal? The way the way the, the, the Iranians were brought to the negotiating table was through very, very tough sanctions, but not just from the United States, but also from Europe, which historically has been very negative towards the idea of sanctions as a diplomatic tool, but also the Chinese and the Russians. So if President Obama uh, excuse me, if President-elect Trump were dis- to, to decide to undo President Obama's negotiation with other, other world leaders on Iran um, and decide to reimpose U.S. sanctions, the question is, would others uh, follow? And it seems very, very unlikely, short of some action by Iran, which you can't preclude, that, that a unilateral decision by the United States to just suspend the deal would then uh, bring uh, uh, the Chinese and the Russians or the Europeans on board for sanctions. So that would really limit the impact of the sanctions on Iran. And in the meantime, if the deal were suspended, the Iranians could go back into nuclear business and edge closer to the nuclear line. So um, I, I would hope and I, I expect also that when you know uh, the new president looks at this deal, he might... Uh, he might begin to question whether leaving it in place and seeing how it works while making it clear that he would take some tough steps if there were, um, uh, if, if, if Iran didn't abide by the deal, that that might be a better course. But the point is, while he has the authority, the consequences are pretty serious. This relationship with the United States and Iran is a very difficult one. And uh, what you have to see is this Iran nuclear agreement deals with the toughest problem. We were most worried about Iran building a nuclear weapon. That was number one concern. So the diplomats went after the number one concern. They got a temporary agreement on it. And that temporary agreement is enormously important. It stops Iran from building a bomb for blank number of years, maybe 10, maybe more years. That is a significant achievement. Now, it does not solve all other problems we have with Iran, and we've got a lot of them. We're worried about a lot of things they're doing. Uh, But the criticisms of the agreement, if you'll read them carefully, usually come down to, well, we didn't solve this other problem. Uh, They don't recognize the importance of what we did. Here's an agreement that we entered into with uh, five other countries, Russia, basically the permanent members of the UN plus Germany, and uh, they're going to hold to that agreement. Uh, Does the United States, after negotiating this agreement for whatever it was, 10 or 12 years, just walk away from it? Think what that does to the credibility of the United States as a negotiating partner. And as Lee suggests, you open the door for Iran going right back to build nuclear weapons, which is the very thing we want to stop. 
so this is a very, very complex matter. I hope President-elect Trump will proceed with great caution here and try to deal with the other problems that we have with Iran, which are plenty, and uh, keep in place the essential parts of this. Now, there are some charges of violations by Iran of the agreement. Those are serious. They have to be looked at carefully. My understanding is those charges do not uh, disrupt the fundamental direction Iran is going here, that is to not build nuclear weapons. That still is the core of it. But <clears throat> violations have to be taken seriously. This might be completely ignorant, but when I think about other contracts, you're usually locked in it for a couple of years before you can renegotiate it or try to get out. There's no sort of mandatory minimum that we have to be a part of this? Well, every treaty has an escape clause. And, um, uh, you know, international law is kind of a squishy thing, you know, there are, uh, and in many ways, that's to our benefit. So it's not like if you violate a treaty, someone's going to throw you in jail, you know? I mean, there is an international criminal court, but that's for other kinds of things. So, so uh, but th uh, in this case, and it goes back to what uh, the congressman was saying, you know, uh, c Congress wasn't really, uh, Congress couldn't vote on whether or not to approve the deal the way it was set up was they voted on whether or not to disapprove the deal. Uh, and, uh, and that was, and the president made clear, the White House made clear that this was kind of a, a, a voluntary vote, but not a binding one. They didn't want to go ahead without some kind of a congressional uh, assent or at least an agreement not to vote by a, uh, uh, by a sufficient uh, supermajority to, 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 um, to disapprove the deal. What is striking here is what Trump said about it the stupidest deal we've ever entered into. I don't see how you can possibly reach that, reach that conclusion. You can say it's not a good agreement that we should have been tougher and you can point out this provision and that provision, but to say that it's a stupid agreement impresses me as an impulsive statement, a, a kind of a statement for, from the gut, a statement to pander, to your supporters, and is not a carefully thought out statement. He must learn that as president, you cannot make those kind of statements without disrupting world order. You cannot get up and say this is the stupidest deal ever. I want to follow up on that because, you know, we talked before about how world leaders are on pins and needles, I think was Sarah's term. I think there are a lot of people in, in America, a lot of voters in America, maybe the majority who voted for Hillary Clinton, even though the Electoral College went the other way, that are on pins and needles because of some of what we've been talking about. You two have built careers and are experts on – international affairs, foreign policy, those kind of things. Donald Trump is not. Uh, we just came through a campaign in which he threw out all sorts of bombs about what he would do or, or not do, which I think uh, Lee Hamilton just very clearly said, you know, those things, you just can't do those yeah. when you're president. So what, what can you tell me that's going to, to sort of make uh, or, or tell our audience, the, those who are on pins and needles, about how this transition, what, what's the learning curve for Donald Trump and is he capable? Uh, that, I don't want this to get too political, but, but what if he doesn't, what if he can't um, change his behavior? Um, well, I think there's several answers, Bob. One okay. is... I think Lee referred to this earlier. The team that he brings together now becomes hugely important. It's always important for a president, but more so now, because you've got a president-elect who is not a policy person, who thinks quickly and uh, makes judgments before they ought to be made. My, my judgment is that Trump has underestimated the difficulties of the problems we confront and has overestimated his capacity to deal with them. Now, there are checks and balances that are important here. Getting the right advisors is one, and that's a big one. Uh, the, the Congress can challenge the president on all kinds of things and should. 
I believe that the Congress is an independent branch of government, and they ought to be independent of the president, put the party labels aside. And so the Congress is one check, and I hope they'll be some, have some restraint. For sure, the Congress is not going to be able to act as quickly as Trump thinks. Trump says, on day one, I'm going to do this, and on so many days, he won't be able to do it. Congress simply doesn't act that quickly. That in itself is a check because it extends the time for the learning curve. The courts are a check. On a lot of things that Trump has said, he has totally ignored due process of law. And you cannot deport, you can't just go in and pick somebody out of their home and throw them out of the country. You gotta go into an immigration court. Immigration courts are running two and three years behind on their cases. So you can't throw people out without due process of law. So the courts are a check. Uh, The media is a check, uh, and an important one in our society. And they will be pointing out a lot of these things. Already you're reading all kinds of articles criticizing the very things that Lee and I have been talking about here. Uh, We get that from good media reporting, for the most part. The ultimate check is the citizens themselves stepping up and making themselves heard, making sure they participate in the system and become a counterbalance here to some kind of extremist actions. Mm-hmm. There, there are checks. This, Bob, this is a test of representative democracy. It's a, we're going into a period of time when all of these institutions you and I have talked about, separation of powers, balances, and all the rest of it, um, executive, legislative, judicial, we're in for a test. Are these institutions going to work? Lee Feinstein, I want to hear your your take on this, too. Well, the first thing I would say is that presidents learn uh, that when they make uh, statements uh, that have global significance that others take action uh, on that basis. And that, I think, is, is, is a really important point to make. So uh, uh, if, if you make statements that call into question the degree to which the United States will live up to its treaty commitments, then the allies who rely, hist- who've relied historically on those commitments, they don't just sit still. They start rethinking some of their own assumptions. And this is, I think, very uh, important. If the United States wants to retain a leadership position in the world, and the rest of the world does look to the United States, uh, we don't want to be doing things by ourselves. I think that's actually one of the messages that uh, President Obama and President-elect Trump actually share, that we shouldn't be doing all this stuff by ourselves. Well, if you want to be able to lead, you need followers. Uh, and, and one of the ways you inspire leadership is to retain fidelity to some of the promises, to the promises that you've made. I think that's very important. And um, it's, uh, uh, so, so that's the first point I'd make. I, I think the second is just to uh, support what the congressman said about confidence in our institutions. You know, um, uh, on the one hand, um, our system was not built for speed. And that frustrates a lot of people. I think that, uh, and our, our society is more complicated than it used to be. As Congressman Hamilton said uh, a couple of days ago, we've got a much bigger country than we used to have, and it's more diverse. So it's more complicated to govern. So these, these 18th century structures that we built, which have served us very, very well, and I think will continue to serve us very well, they can be frustrating. So this process is very, very difficult. But that contributes to frustration. And, you know, globally, you know, the phrase is democracy has to deliver. And when people look around and they say, hey, wait a second, you know, we used to have this autocratic system. Now we got this democratic system. And I don't have a job. Or I feel like my identity is being threatened by people who don't live in my country and are far away. That creates real problems. So it's very, very important in our country and overseas that, uh, you know, we pay attention to the concerns, fears, anxieties, need for opportunity for people who feel uh, left out. That's really, that's really critical. But at the same time, the, the 
you know, to use the, the, the civics phrase, the checks and balances built into our system also should give us confidence that, uh, that, we, that we can move ahead, uh, that, our, our, that our government can move ahead, and, um, and, and that that ought to have an influence on whoever uh, is president as well. Thank you. We heard a lot during this campaign about Russia, more than I ever remember. And even on Monday, Trump and, and Putin had a phone conversation and talked about how horrible just sort of the relationship was between the two countries. I'm just wondering if you two can sort of project what you think, how that relationship might be reworked in the future with these two. Biggest well, I think there's been some encouragement that they're talking to one another and uh, find uh, at least a minimum of uh, common ground. Uh, Russia is another very difficult challenge for us. Uh, we have to have in our policy a combination of confrontation and cooperation. We have to stand up to our values and we make clear to uh, Russia, we don't like what they're doing in certain places. Now, this is what bothers me about Trump's position so far. Putin has done some really bad things in the Crimea and Ukraine and in lots of other areas. When he does those things, the United States must not let him get away with it. At, at the very least, rhetorically, we ought to blast him. And uh, we have to consider what levers we have, including sanctions, to let them know we disapprove. Uh, what Trump has said, uh, what Trump has ignored is what Putin has done uh, and seems to be uncritical of what he has done. And that bothers me a great deal because you don't, <laughs> Putin is a wily guy and he's going to take whatever he can get. Uh, and assert the Russian interest. Uh, so I think uh, what Trump has said is worrisome with regard to the Russian. At the same time, the, you have to recognize that cooperation with Russia is, we have to seek it out and wherever we can cooperate with them. Russia is not a minor player. Its economy is not very strong, less than Italy's economy, for example, I think. Uh, but on the other hand, they got the nuclear weapon, and they've got the talent uh, to develop that weapon and use it uh, further. So it's an important relationship that we have, and what uh, Trump has said so far is worrisome. It's not tough enough. David Holbrook, uh, uh, famous American diplomat son, uh, who uh, was on campus, and he made a terrific film called The Diplomat, and I know a lot of people uh, saw it last night uh, or uh, uh, recently on campus, and if, if you haven't, it, it's streamable, so you, sh you should check it out. But, you know, one of the, the first conversations uh, 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 the son has with uh, Secretary of State Clinton, she was then Secretary of State when he interviewed her, was, you know, you don't uh, negotiate with your friends, or you don't make peace with your friends. You got to talk to people who you disagree with, maybe especially so. So, in that sense, you know, it, it's extremely important. And I would say that there's there's a degree of continuity. And the Obama administration's approach was to find areas where there is agreement between the United States and Russia, and to move forward. And the Iran uh, case, which is what we were talking about, is one such example where it would have been much harder to bring Iran to the negotiating table, but for the fact that Russia and was going along with these sanctions. So that's very important. But just to uh, emphasize what the congressman said, you also have to be very, very clear when there are problems. And there are some serious problems. Mm -hmm. Russia uh, uh, illegally annexing Crimea and violating the sovereignty of Ukraine uh, with whether it's little green men or, or others, is just no question that there's a Russian intervention into eastern Ukraine, which violates that country's sovereignty. There are war crimes taking place in Syria, which we cannot afford to look the other way. There, there, we certainly need to negotiate with Russia, as Secretary of State Kerry is trying to do, to bring that uh, terrible uh, 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 crisis and conflict to an end. But that does not mean uh, condoning the kind of uh, random uh, bombing uh, uh, and uh, carnage that we're seeing, which uh, uh, s some of which Russia uh, is uh, responsible for. And then, of course, there's this sort of unprecedented effort 
through uh, cyber technology to interfere with, monkey around with, or at least um, send a signal about the potential to uh, uh, interfere with uh, our election. That's some serious stuff. And so uh, it's possible, and you know, we have some pretty good diplomats, and they know how to do this, uh, to be very, very firm about uh, uh, the things that you uh, do not agree with, and there are plenty of them, while also working, uh, as, as Congressman Hamilton said, with Russia, which is obviously very important. Did okay. you see how uh, Putin jumped on our problems with our elections? He wants to call in question the legitimacy and the credibility of American elections. Wow. Uh, he runs a, an outrageous set of elections. <laughs> we, we have two minutes to go. So uh, just last thoughts. We haven't talked about terrorism. We haven't talked about immigration. We, I mean, not, <laughs> not so much. We haven't yeah. talked that much about Syria and Assad. So in the last two minutes, like one minute each, what's, a, what's another area to think that we should all be looking out for? Just pick one. Lee? Well, the, the, the big issue, really big issue, is climate change. You pick up the paper today, your paper, uh-huh. and it reports on flooding in Fort Lauderdale or wherever it was, climate change in all probability. This is an issue that impacts the future of the planet. And the, uh, I, I think this has to be elevated. I do not want to see the United States lose its position as a leader in the world in dealing with the question of climate change. And when Mr. Trump says it's a hoax, it's among the statements he has made that causes me the deepest concern. Okay, Lee's only left you 45 seconds, so. I agree agree with that. I I would also say one other thing, which is uh, this is um, so far an administration which has indicated it is not particularly concerned about what happens inside other countries' borders. I'm not talking about uh, uh, anything other than the fact that the United States ought to stand up for certain principles and that other countries really look to the President of the United States and to the United States and American society more broadly to defend those principles, whether it's the support for uh, uh, democracy and democratic principles or the dignity of, uh, of all different kinds of people whatever their beliefs, whoever they are. That's, that's extremely important. And uh, not to be underestimated, the, the power of the United States by its own example uh, and, and how it conducts itself at home, its impact on, on the rest of the world. All right, Lee Feinstein, Lee Hamilton, thanks so much for being here today. You guys are, are it's, it's inspirational to sit and talk to you. Thank you very much. For uh, Sarah Whitmire and for producer Sophia Salaby and in- engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.